Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Many of you may have seen Ian Bremmer, founder of the Eurasia Group, making the rounds of media over the years, talking about global risks and trends. An expert on Russia, he's in particular demand right now, as the standoff over Ukraine continues. What you probably don't know is where Bremer comes from and the unlikely story of how he got to where he is today. I sat down with him this week to talk about all of this, and here's that conversation. Ian Bremer, it's great to see you. I can't think of a more propitious time to speak with you. So welcome. Thank you. Very happy to join you, man. Absolutely. You are uh, a ubiquitous presence on uh, television. You are a counselor to countless corporations uh, assessing uh, global uh, political risk. Uh, And it seems like a long way from Chelsea, Massachusetts, uh, where you grew up right there on the Mystic River. You know Chelsea? Well, I know enough. Yeah, I know enough. <laughs> I've done a few races in Massachusetts, so uh, yeah, I know. I know. But tell me about that, because it, it is a long way from, from there to here. And uh, I think it, it'd be surprising to people how you grew up. And I, I want to trace that story before we talk about our uh, risky world. Well, the funny thing, Dave, I mean, to bring it into politics is I remember when I read Hillbilly Elegy and and I felt connected to J.D. I mean, this is well before his true shark jumping <laughs> over the past few months. Yes. Uh, but no, because because his Mima in that story was my mother, yes. uh, this kind of insane woman who had massive panic disorder and w- grew up. She she didn't finish high school. She eloped with my dad and enlisted man. They moved to Ecuador. I used to hear that was where he was based. I used to hear stories that she could tell when the spaghetti was done because she'd throw it against the wall and see if it would stick. And he died when I was four. Her life. Do you remember? Do you you remember that? I mean, can you do you have any recollection of that? I have three or four sort of effectively. They used to be real memories. Now they're almost memories of memories of Uh things that we did together. Um, like sitting in the back of the car and in, in we were, they were counting the number of freight cars going past when I, I think I was two or something. And I remembered him playing this game with me that was an Egyptian game with these plastic scarabs and you'd work your way up the look like a ziggurat. Um, and it, had, it was a little scary because it had noises. I remember those things, but I don't really remember him. That's hard. Um. I don't know if that's hard. The harder part was the fact that my mom, who did everything for me and my brother, but was a little insane. She had I mean, she had panic disorder. 
She was a little borderline um, and and she yelled all the time. And and I mean, I'd be nowhere without her, but it was hard to live in a tiny apartment in the projects and be grown up like that. So so it was strange. Um, And and but I will say that, uh, you know, it wasn't unsafe. It was just poor. So, I mean, these were not Did like, she was she working at the same time? Uh, no, no, she was. I mean, she moved back. She moved to Chelsea because that's where the family was from. So when her husband died, uh, she came to Chelsea and she had some support from the extended family. My my grandfather, who was really the patriarch of, of her family, he was uh, the maintenance man. Um, the, the, the had that was the local superintendent of the maintenance men for for the projects that we were in and helped get us in there, frankly, because, I mean, you know, it was to get into subsidized low income housing was not easy on a dime. Um, and, you know, suddenly she had nothing. So that that's what happened. And I went to I was a product of local public school, but she made she got me every opportunity. And I always felt like I could accomplish things because of her. And we should just make clear, Chelsea's a, you know, a very working class community. I, I mentioned Mystic River because uh, a lot of people have seen that film movie, probably. Yeah. Yes. Sean and, Penn. And, yeah. Right. Yeah. Kind of describes the area. Very well. Very well. Now, you, you, you mentioned you went to public schools. Uh, you kind of whisked through public schools. You, uh, I mean, I was a kid in the New York City public schools and I skipped a grade. Uh, but uh, you went to college when you were 15. And I guess your mom, you talk about the fact that she could yell. I guess she went and yelled at them because they weren't challenging you enough, huh? So, Dave, you skipped one grade. What grade did you skip? Second. Second. Uh, how, much, did that, how much did that define you, if at all, as you were growing up? Not really at all. I mean, I, the fact is it was, a, it was an early grade. It, was, it, it, it mostly defined me because I had a really terrific, I was kind of an, you know, I would have been diagnosed as kind of an ADHD yeah. kid. And I had a really great teacher in first and third grades. She took me both years and kind of was formative in my life. But, but I didn't, I wasn't so far ahead of everybody that, and it wasn't that unusual for people to be skipped that, you know, I was out of place when I went to college, uh, that I was, you know, it wasn't like that. So I think it's different than your experience. Yeah, because, I mean, I, when I was in grammar school and, you know, they'd have me in first grade for she, she set it up with the local principal, who was this amazing guy, Mr. Richard Denning. And I remember, well, she came in, she said, he's not he's bored. He's not going to be challenged. I'm thinking everybody's bored. What's the problem? But anyway, <laughs> They, they had me in in homeroom and recess and I think music or whatever the equivalent is in first grade with my peers. But then when it was time to do actual subjects, of courses of study, they would literally have me go and walk to the third grade and I would attend third grade with them. And I, I was incredibly popular in grammar school because I was like, you know, I got to be with my own age and hang out. And I was a pretty social kid. And what I didn't like is once I got a couple double promotions and the first one I got is because my my local school just ran out of grades. They'd only <laughs> went up to six. So they had to put me someplace. So they made yeah. me skip one that happened again. And and so then you're in high school at 11. And, yeah. and now instead of being the most popular social kid, now you're this unique weird. kind of you're, I mean, weird, a prodigy Doogie Hauser, yeah, I mean, right. that kind of thing. And I didn't I didn't sign up for that. 
Right. Mm-hmm. Because I mean, like, I'm, I'm fine with being super smart, but I wasn't fine with being a social outcast. I wasn't fine with not being big enough to play sports like that kind of irritated me. And you just kind of had to figure a way through that. And then the yeah. funny thing, Dave, the funny thing is I went to uh, to Tulane on a scholarship. Yes. And, you know, uh, it, it was I had never been really anywhere. And suddenly here's this 15 year old kid and Mardi Gras and no real drinking age. It was like 18, but grandfathered. But the assistant registrar gave me a fake ID that actually said that my birthday was earlier. So I felt like a normal kid. That's so very I, accommodating. Oh, my God. I mean, oh, yeah. She was amazing. And but you can just imagine this kid that went to an all boy high school at 11 and suddenly he is dropped into yes. fraternity life, Tulane. It was I don't even remember most of my first year. <laughs> I had a 1.9 GPA in my first term. It was incredible. It was really and it, that was a real education for me. Yeah, it was, was it? But it must've been hard too. I you know, I had Gordon Brown on here last week and he similarly kind of whisked through school and was in a university at 15 or 16 and I said, "Well, how was that experience?" He said, "I wouldn't recommend it." Uh and you know, just because you were sort of mismatched with your, you know, emotionally, uh, you're in a different place, you know, than your, than your, than your peer students there. I mean, it's funny. I don't think about this very much anymore because it's been a long time, but when I do think about it, the thing I'm proudest of is the fact that I figured stuff out socially that I didn't become a violin virtuoso or a computer programmer. I actually, I always liked things that really involved engaging with people. And I wasn't going to let the fact that I was pushed into this outcast status define my career. Um, and that, that, that to me, I think is because almost everyone I know when you're, when you're like pushed ahead that much, you meet a lot of other people that are in that space and they usually have challenges socially. Yeah. And I think my challenges socially are much more genetic. <laughs> so they didn't throw you in the dumpster or anything like that. I mean, I was, was thrown in a couple locker lockers when I was a freshman in high school. Sure. But, I mean, you know, <laughs> I, that, that's just but my first day. My first day as a freshman in high school was kind of funny. I go up. I'm in the whatever, you know, I'm with the I'm in algebra, whatever the advanced algebra thing is in ninth grade. And I'm standing right in front of the door. The doors are closed until the bells ring and you go in. And I'm standing there and waiting and the bell hasn't rung yet. And suddenly this kid looks like an upperclassman with a football, a satin football high school jacket on, comes over to me and he says, get out of my way. And I look over at him and I'm thinking, who, who is this kid that's telling me to get out of his way? So I said, who do you think you're talking to? He picks me up against the door, punches me square in the chest. I fall and hard. I fall to the ground. He opens the door. He says, now pick yourself up and come in when you're ready to go to class. That was my that was, of course, my teacher for <laughs> algebra in ninth grade. Skippy DeFonso. That was my that was my welcome. <laughs> welcome to Dom Savio High School. God bless it. I swear to God, I learned a lot. You uh, in the middle of your uh, in the middle of your college career, you uh, took a trip to the Soviet Union and that obviously had a big impact on you. Tell me about that. So that was the summer of my freshman year. And um, a prof- again, I had never left the country. I, I, I didn't know anything outside the U.S. New Orleans was already, it felt a little foreign. And anyone mm-hmm. that's been in New Orleans knows it's a little foreign, but in a good way, right? Yes, you gotta, yes. you gotta, they, they couldn't Absolutely, even understand yeah. my Boston accent down there. I had to figure <laughs> out how to, how to pronounce R's and stuff like that. Yeah, um, you don't have really have much of it anymore. 
No, because my freshman roommate literally couldn't understand me. He was from Laplace, Louisiana, self-identified Kunas, and he couldn't understand me. So I said, I'm going to have to figure out how to talk. So this guy will become my friend. Yeah, I grew up in New York, so I left a bunch of that behind, too. So I'm, yeah. uh, I, I get it. So anyway, so so this you you have this opportunity to go. Tell me about that. Because so. So this was 1986 and Mm -hmm. Gorbachev had just come to power. And this is pre-perestroika, pre-glasnost. And uh, suddenly a kid uh, that has never traveled anywhere uh, is on a trip with his professor and a few upperclassmen to learn about the Soviet Union, Leningrad, Moscow, um, Baku, Yerevan. It was Tbilisi. It was incredible. And and I had, of course, this was this was the days of Reagan. This was the days of the evil. That was a big, big. That was the year of the big summit. Indeed. Yeah. the, The thing that most struck me from that trip was how different these kids were that I met there, the different the people were from the, you know, kind of ideological struggle that I had read about in the headlines. And it fascinated me. And it was a country, of course, that was on the brink of absolutely precipitous world changing events. And so, I mean, anyone that then grew up with that over the course of the late eighties through my college, how would you not want that to be a part of what you end up doing, which is such a unique experience. You actually made it central to what you're doing because you went off to Stanford and you, uh, you got a, a, a PhD in Soviet, in, in Russian studies uh, and became quite an expert uh, on it, and I, I should put a pin. I want to pin on, put a pin in your remarkable story here for a second, because as long as we're there, and it is the 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 uh, the issue of the moment. Uh, tell me, tell me what you see right now in Ukraine. Uh, how did we get here? What do you think of how the U.S. and NATO are handling it, and where do you think Putin's going? Well, we got here. Uh, because there are both a constellation of opportunities and threats that Putin saw uh, all of a sudden emerging at the same time. In terms of opportunities, Biden, he sees as older, a little weaker, and especially post-Afghanistan, less interested in Putin's part of the world, more interested in China, wants to focus on the China relationship, has antagonized a bunch of European allies with unilateralism, in the Afghan withdrawal. Then you've got Merkel's gone. Um, and she was the leader of the Minsk uh, group in t- and in imposing sanctions against the Russians after the 2014 invasion. Um, you've got a weaker chancellor with a three-party coalition that now has just finished construction on the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. You've got the French president wholly pissed off after the AUKUS debacle when he wasn't told, pushing strategic autonomy and his own ideas for the future of a military Europe defense strategy that is not aligned as much with NATO. Um, and it's winter and gas prices are high and oil prices are high. So, so I mean, Russia's we, economy has been repaired somewhat by the demand for oil. Hell, they're running a surplus, right? Yeah. So, and the Europeans need them more. So he sees all of that as opportunity. And then on top of that, you've got these opposition movements in Belarus, in Kazakhstan, which is like one of his best allies. And suddenly the place just explodes. The Kremlin is completely shocked. They end up sending in 3000 paratroopers like in a day when the Kazakh government, loyal government asked them to do so. So he's increasingly worried that coming soon to a theater near you, 
you've got, you know, these democratic forces as well. And he's convinced, by the way, that all of this is at least in part being supported by, if not orchestrated by the CIA and George Soros from the color revolution day. So he sees American fingerprints on that. And he's really unhappy with the new Ukrainian president and with the Ukrainian president working more closely with NATO. I mean, even if they're not going to get NATO membership, there has been Turkish drones sent, anti-tank javelin missiles sent, um, you know, and more training, more joint exercises. So when you put all that together, there's no question that Putin saw this as opportunity to escalate significantly and see if you can change the status quo in ways that work better for Putin's leadership for life. And now, and- now, now, unlike 2014 and 2008, there has been a preemptive reaction to this and uh, a coordination among uh, the NATO uh, countries that are that that seems more aggressive uh, than we saw then. How does Putin process that? Well, in fact, I'll go further than that. I, I actually think that given what Putin was seeing when he decided to really start this escalation and make these demands on the United States, this series of published demands, he sent it to the U.S., but he also leaked it publicly. Um, I, I think that he is stunned with the strength and the coordination of the U.S. NATO response against Russia. I think there's no way he would have expected that, that the Germans would be on board even with the Nord Stream 2 cancellation, if there's any Russian troops that go into Ukraine. Um, And you're going to see that with the Olaf Scholz summit uh, coming up on Monday with Biden in the White House. I think he's stunned um, with the forward deployments that are being made, not just by the United States, just announcing 3,000 additional troops, but by the French, by the Spaniards, by the Danes, by others. I mean, across the board. I mean, he's got Viktor Orban from Hungary visiting him in, in Moscow. That's it, my friend. So, you know, I think there's a reason we haven't heard a damn peep from Putin literally until two days ago. And and it's it's because he understands that it's not going the way he thought it was going to go. Yeah. Paradoxically, his part of his motivation was to push back on what he considers NATO encroachment on him. And and now uh, he has actually tightened, tightened the net around him. So. How does he, uh, Ian, how does he, knowing what you know of Putin, and you must know him, you must know uh, certainly a lot about him, um, how, what does he do now? Because he has, he is, you know, he's, he's clearly uh, set the stage for an invasion. He's got all of this uh, mobilization. Um, how, is, there a, is there a pole to slide down here, or does the commitment of those troops uh, and the sort of beating of the drum almost necessitate that he he act. I think negotiations have now started. They've not quite started in earnest, but I suspect they will. If he was going to act, he wasn't going to act until after the Olympics because he doesn't want to undermine or embarrass Beijing. He's about to travel, of course, to Beijing for the opening of the Beijing Olympics. And the Chinese actually not just sponsored, but co-wrote um, the, the Olympic boycott on violence with the United Nations. So you're not going to want to antagonize them while it's going on in the host country. Um, But uh, look, I think that Putin right now is still interested 
in shaking the branches a little and see if he can improve. As you'd say, I mean, I'm not a golfer, but if you were a golfer, you'd say to improve his lie, right? I think there are things he can do that don't trip any wires um, that that still are escalatory and gives him a little bit better position. So, for example, um, the Belarusian government is about to change their constitution. It used to say it was neutral and it was non-nuclear. Those two things are going away. So Putin would be able to permanently base troops in Belarus and include nuclear weapons. That increases pressure, but it, it, it doesn't force any action from the U.S. or NATO. It's not a precipitous escalation. I could see um, them decide to send some military um, over to Venezuela or to Cuba. I know that Putin frequently says, both to the Americans as well as to Europeans, how would you like it? You guys can take me out with hypersonic missiles in five minutes. How would you like it if we could do that to you? And the deputy foreign minister has recently suggested that the Russians might want to play in the Western Hemisphere. So we might see an announcement around that. I think things like that, he's likely to still take a bite or two at the apple to escalate before diplomacy has a chance to really play out because he hasn't yet gotten nearly what would be an acceptable outcome. And we're, you know, we're still in early stages of this. But I do believe that after that, there is a path for diplomacy. I also think that after that, if diplomacy doesn't work, I don't think he's planning a full invasion of Ukraine. And the intelligence community in the U.S. disagrees with me on this, by the way. But I do, I do think that there is a real possibility that Putin does militarily escalate, does, for example, send troops into the Russian occupied, but not mm -hmm. officially Donbass to protect Russian passport holders who Putin says incorrectly, the Ukrainians are committing acts of genocide against them. I could see something like that, some more cyber attacks. Given the language that the, that the president, that Tony Blinken have, has, yep. has used, that if one, if one Russian soldier Yep. crosses the line. That's what they said. Uh, that is a that will trigger a uh, a, a full throated response. Um, what 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 does the White House do if in, if if Putin does what you suggest, which is sending uh, troops into uh, areas that are already in dispute? Well, David, you remember why they said that they said that in part in later in the yeah. day after Biden, to clean up after press, Biden's conference, press conference yeah. when, when he said well, if it's a military incursion not as big of a deal and then the critics yeah. were saying you're giving him a flashing green light so uh, what i would argue is they then overshot a little and the truth is in between the truth is if any russian troops go into the donbass it's not going to be one right it'll be like a few hundred or a few thousand but you don't have any ukrainians getting killed or maybe you just have some border skirmishes so something that feels more Armenia, Azerbaijan like, but it doesn't feel like an invasion into Ukraine. I think the U.S. would put additional sanctions on the Russians at that point. And then the question is, does that mean that Nord Stream 2 is dead? Because if the U.S. puts unilateral sanctions on all of the companies involved in Nord Stream, Germany is going along. That's mm -hmm. clear. Um, and and that the potential for that to escalate and get ugly in ways that we can talk about it, it, are real. So mm -hmm. I, I do worry that what Biden has accomplished with this strong, unified NATO message, he's done two things and they pull in different directions. On the one hand, he has increased deterrence sufficiently 
that the room, the path for negotiations actually progressing well is now greater than it was three weeks ago. On the other hand, he's also made it more likely that even a limited escalation from the Russians can really blow up out of control. And my God, that is a hard needle to thread right now. Mm -hmm. The other thing we have to watch very carefully is Putin is about to meet with Xi Jinping Mm -hmm. in Beijing on Friday. And we need to watch every single word that is uttered by those two leaders on the global stage. We need to know what she is offering Putin and what he's not. Yeah. Presumably the Chinese can help fill in a lot of the uh, the gap if uh, economic sanctions are uh, or at least some of the gap in the Russian economy if, if, if sanctions are imposed. They can't do gas in the near term because there's no infrastructure for it. Um, oil, they could certainly make a large, um, you know, long term purchase agreement. There's not a lot. There's not a huge amount of Chinese investment into Russia, but they could certainly send those signals as well. And then there's a question of just how many exemptions there'd be when the Americans decide to put sanctions on. You remember the Americans did those Rosneft sanctions and they didn't figure out how critical that was for the aluminum spot market. They got themselves in trouble. So, look, this time around, you have a lot of people that are expert that are figuring this out. That also means that they're going to figure out what's exemptions they need to put on that don't hurt the markets, but as a consequence, make things not as problematic for Russia. So there's a lot of give and take here. Yeah, and there's a. Diff- I mean, this is a uh, a challenging time, which we'll talk about uh, generally with the U.S. economy, uh, and that has political implications for Biden. So, you know, the ripple effects of these decisions are something that he has to consider. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now, back to the show. So let me just return to your story. You get your PhD, and did you think that you were going to be an academic? What did you have... In my, because you didn't stay very long before you headed to New York. No, I, look, I, I was 24. And I mean, you know, you said, oh, I decided to get a PhD at Stanford, but it wasn't really a decision. I mean, I loved poli sci and I loved studying the world. But the fact was, you know, McKinsey and Goldman Sachs don't do the job fair at Tulane. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, the interviews I got uh, were like Macy's executive training program, junior executive training program that in five years I could be a buyer for an apartment which seemed kind of mind destroying and uh, an E and J Gallo winery, which was kind of cool, but they wanted me to like also <laughs> set up stock in addition to be like a local manager. Like, I'm not doing that. That, that, that was, that seemed a little not where I was going. The CIA was very interested in me, which intellectually seemed fascinating, but I, I did not like the idea of not being able to put together a resume with stuff I was doing that struck me as very limiting because I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. But right. Stanford, Stanford accepted me into a PhD program that was free. And I figured, hey, if I do the PhD, when I finish it, I'm going to be like the same age as most people when they finish their degree. And then I can go out and get a job. But look, if you grew up with my family, you weren't going to be an academic. You were going to get a job. You're going to do something. How much were you driven by the idea that you weren't going back to Chelsea, that you wanted to make that you wanted to make a, a living, that you, you know, you wanted to be secure. Uh, how, how much did that enter into your your sort of thinking about the future? I wanted to go back to Boston. I love Boston. I mean, Boston was the shining city on the hill, massive Red Sox, Celtics, Patriots fan. 
that would have been awesome. Live in the in in, in Beacon Hill or something mm-hmm. like that. Oh my God! I mean, I, there was this guy. My, one of my first jobs, I, I worked. I was a sales assistant in a scrimshaw shop, <laughs> uh, Boston scrim. You know, etching on whale teeth. I learned everything about etching on whale teeth. Probably I learned some stuff that didn't exist about etching on whale teeth. And uh, and he had a little apartment and a walk up in Beacon Hill. I couldn't believe it. I'm like, oh my God, this is how you want to live, right? Mm-hmm. It was amazing. So no, I wasn't thinking about like leaving where I came from. But I definitely thought about it was inconceivable to me that you wouldn't get a job, a mm-hmm. job doing something. I and mean, the idea of being an academic wasn't remotely considered by me. And the funny thing is, when I got to Stanford and I started my Ph.D., the professors all kind of assumed that you were going to go into academe. And I just figured, well, that's because they're in academe. But, you know, obviously you finish your Ph.D. and you just go and get a job. And I hadn't appreciated that people didn't hire political scientists as political scientists per se. Like I was really surprised that there wasn't like a field of applied political science out there. That was weird to me. Yeah. Well, you sort of went out and created one. Yeah. You went to New York. You started acquainting yourself with CEOs there. First of all, how, I mean, that seems audacious to me. How did you make these connections? And did you say, "I'm, I'm putting out a shingle and opening up a political science shop and I'd like you to I mean, what, what, tell me how that happened. Well, I mean, some of it was just, you know, sort of the luck of what was happening in the world right there. Keep in mind, I mean, I had written a dissertation, which, I mean, in 2022 sounds normal on the politics of, you know, Russians in the new Ukraine. And today that's relevant. Back then, of course, that was really, really interesting. That was all of these countries used to be republics in the Soviet Union. No one invested. Suddenly they're all open and shock therapy and Yeltsin and all this stuff. And, uh, you know, I, and I absolutely, I had traveled to all, I speak Russian. I traveled to all those new countries. I knew a lot of the leaders. I mean, Boris Nemtsov, you remember the guy that of was, course, you know, yes, assassinated. Was murdered, yes. was a good friend. We used to hang out a lot. We wrote an op-ed together in the New York Times. I had done a few books at that point. I mean, as a young PhD and I was there on faculty for a couple of years. I, uh, after I finished my PhD, I was planning on, you know, moving and getting a job. And my, my advisor was Robert Conquest, the great Bob Conquest. He wrote The Harvest of Sorrow, Stalin, Breaker of Nations. He just died a couple of years ago. And he said, um, we want you to stay here and we're going to give you a fellowship at the Hoover Institution. You can teach. It'll be great. And I said, uh, I said, no, I, I want to go get a job. I mean, like, I, I can't do that. I've never done anything. I need to go get a job. He called my mother (laughs) and he said, this kid's crazy. We're giving him this unique opportunity. They ended up making me a national fellow. It was I was the youngest national fellow in Hoover history, and I almost didn't do it. But everyone, including my mom, pressured me to do it. And even though I didn't like it and I felt like a bit of a fraud because I had never done anything. So how could you be opining on stuff when you didn't have any life experience yet? It was a really great perch for me to learn and network and and build my bona fides. And so when I moved to New York, I mean, I was actually kind of known, even though I was really young, as an expert in the former Soviet states. And a lot of these new presidents and ministers of countries that no one had really heard of, the Kyrgyz Republic, right? I mean, Georgia. I remember when I hosted Shevardnadze when he was president in New York Mm -hmm. and he knew me well. But he didn't know me face to face. He just knew me from correspondence and he shows up and he's waiting for this Ian Bremmer guy to show up. And I have a photo. I actually have a photo of when he when he was introduced. and He realized it was me. And you see him looking over at me and he's like, (laughs) 
who the hell is this guy? Because I'm a little twerp, you know. Yeah. I mean, it was so. So it wasn't that hard. Did he pick you up and shove you in a in a uh, locker? I, he would have. I think at that point, <laughs> Vic, Victor Chernomirdin was the leader that was most likely to shove me in a locker back when he was. He he, he didn't get me at all. It was pretty funny. Obviously, you, your first visit to uh, the Soviet Union was the Soviet Union when you got to uh, Stanford. Was this period of transition, yeah. uh, the post-Soviet uh, world? How would you grade the U.S.'s handling? of that period and how much does the u.s's handling of russia in the post-soviet years so that that decade after that how much of that contributed to the retrenchment that we've seen enormously and i mean you know i've had these conversations at length with larry summers and david lipton and people that you know you and i both know really well they understand that we just Political constraints, lack of imagination, going to cost too much money. You know, it was a big win. We've got all these independent countries. We did the Berlin Wall. That's awesome. It's our ideology. Everyone's just kind of come over. But I mean, shock therapy without the economic resources behind it. I mean, what we did with the Russians was, you know, frankly, almost as bad as what we did with the Iraqis. I mean, in many ways, I mean, we didn't lay waste literally to the ground, but massive opportunity that we just completely lost because we weren't willing to do the spade work. And wound up with really a corrupt uh, oligarchy. That's right. Completely. So you went and you sold companies on the idea that there was a lot of risk in the world and if and we're in a global economy and if they were going to invest in the world, then they ought to be fluent in the geopolitical risks that existed. Is that a fair summation of your, I'm sure your pitch was more, was, was, uh, was more uh, energetic than mine, but. Yeah, I'm, I'm scrappy. Uh, but <laughs> I, uh, but you know, uh, look, I mean, look, my mom, I mean, you should, she, my mom was a pit bull, completely uneducated, but my gut, you did not want to get in her way, right? She was uh-huh. just going to get to where she needed to go. But I, I did not know anyone that had ever built a business. Mm-hmm. So that was not in my mind when I moved to New York. I moved to New York with the idea of I'll meet a bunch of people in the field and someone will, given what I do, someone will hire me as a political scientist in, you know, in a big company, in a big bank, and I'll just get some experience. And what I, and, and these people gave me a lot of their time. They, were, they found me interesting. They're willing to take me for lunch. You know, folks that you'd meet at the Council on Foreign Relations or the United Nations Association, wonderful people, Frank Wisner the former mm-hmm. ambassador to India, who was vice chair at AIG, Teddy Roosevelt, um, who was a junior, who was a managing director at Lehman Brothers, uh, Bob Hormatz, right? At that point, former secretary, assistant secretary of state, who was vice chairman of Goldman Sachs. They were incredibly nice to me, but they didn't have jobs as a political scientist. And so after about a year of getting really frustrated that I'm like going around and talking to these people, but don't have a job offer at a big company, I finally said, well, look, you're spending all this time with me and you're really nice and gracious and I appreciate it, but you don't have a job. If I were to just set something up and I don't know exactly what I would do, but would you become, I don't even say, I don't think I said a client. I think I said, would you become a member? Because I understood better, better the membership model of academic organizations, of NGOs. And they all said, I mean, the, I don't even remember who the first one was, because I then had 20 conversations over the course of two weeks and everybody basically said, yeah, sure. 
And it kind of was like this light going off my head. Why didn't I do that a year ago? Mm-hmm. And so it was me then going and setting up this little company to advise these, you know, group of men, mm-hmm. you know, on what was happening in this part of the world that I happened to know real well. And, and then I grew it organically over the last 24 years. Yeah, it was called the Eurasia Group. It is yep. now. It wasn't yep. really a group when you started it. I mean, you were the group. Yeah, but Eurasia guy is a stupid name. Yeah, it is. It yeah. is. It doesn't. I had aspirations confidence. to be a group. I mean, I wanted to hire people. How many people do you have working with you now? Two hundred. Yeah, that's a group. I call that a group. group. Yeah, yeah, we're global. We're global. And the funny thing, <laughs> twenty-four years, we've never taken a dollar of investment. The whole thing has grown organically. It's pretty great. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back with more of the Axe Files. And now back to the show. The thing that that the Eurasia Group is known for are to the general uh, world is your political risk index, and you, you know you have assessed countries uh, and the geopolitical risk uh, associated. Is tell me first of all, I don't want to leave here without having this sort of twenty thousand foot discussion about the world as we find it today because you know i grew up you're i'm a little older than you but i grew up in a time when certainly when i was young when there were all of these first of all the world was defined by this bipolar relationship the 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 us and the soviets and there were these global institutions that grew up after world war ii that were designed to reduce risk and the threat of war um it feels as we sit here today like uh, you know, that there, the, the seams are kind of breaking on all of that and that the world is riskier. And you've written about that. You call it the G0 world. So talk about that. Well, I mean, an easy way to get at this is that when we create institutions, like after World War II, we create them with the values of the countries that have power. And they align with the balance of power in the world. Now, over time, that balance of power changes, changes dramatically the farther we go, but the institutions stay sticky. So I'll give you a very obvious example. If you look around the world today and you say, okay, what countries are most committed to the values of the United Nations as we constructed them in 1945, to the rule of law, the multilateralism, the human rights, the transparency? You wouldn't say the United States. You certainly wouldn't say China. You'd say Japan, which is the third largest economy in the world. Then you'd say Germany, the fourth largest economy in the world. Well, here's the interesting thing. Japan and Germany are not permanent members of the Security Council, and they can't be. And the reason they can't be is because they lost World War II. Now, that's really stupid, but you can't do anything about it. And in fact, the reason that the Russians are a permanent member of the Security Council, and they probably shouldn't be, is because we let the Soviets in because they fought with us. But then five years after we create the United Nations, they've got the block. We got the blockade in Berlin and we're fighting and we're surely thinking about why the hell did we let them into this group? Mm -hmm. But it was too late. And so, I mean, what happens in the world is that writ large. You now have a United States that for many reasons doesn't want to be the world policeman anymore. And we've just experienced that in Afghanistan. You've got the United States that doesn't want to be 
the leader and the architect of global trade anymore. We create the TPP as a framework. All these other countries join it. We can't do it. We don't even have a foreign trade policy right now. Biden will admit this, right? I mean, we have a lot of places we're doing things, but we can't do a foreign trade policy because of domestic constraints, challenges with globalization, populism, all the rest on the Democratic and Republican side. And then you have questions of American values. And a lot of Americans, we don't even know exactly what we stand for anymore. But Lord knows that our willingness to export democracy, given how much we don't seem to have kept in the United States, I mean, from a trade balance perspective, We've been running a deficit on democracy over the last few decades. We've been trying to export a lot more than they're keeping at home. Um, and so, you know, we're not doing it, but no one else can step in our shoes. No one else can play the role the Americans used to. So we went from bipolar global order during the Cold War to a brief shining moment of unipolarity. And then for some of the thing, reasons that you and I have already talked about, we're now increasingly in what I call a G zero, what uh, Richard Haas would call the world in disarray, what David Miliband would call an age of impunity, but what really is a non-polar world. And how fascinating is that? Uh, because it's not like the United States is in decline. I mean, you know, our, our, the percentage of US GDP in the world is roughly what it was 20 years ago. China's gone up, our allies have gone down. We're about the same. We've got like all the world tech companies that matter with the exception of the Chinese, Japanese have none, Europeans have none, but we still have the reserve currency. It's not that, but that our role in the geopolitical order is so much less than it used to be. And for many reasons that, that we can go into, but they're massively overdetermined. Gordon Brown last week was talking about the cost of a move away from multilateralism and in terms of dealing with the major problems facing the planet, climate change, and uh, uh, well, we saw it with a pandemic and uh, nuclear proliferation and so on. What is the danger that a G0 world presents? Well, we've seen it with the pandemic. I mean, we have a World Health Organization that was nowhere near robust enough to convince people to respond in a unified way to what is a global disease. And so instead, the US-China relationship in the context of the worst crisis that most of us have experienced in our lifetimes, relationship gets worse. Inside the United States, red state versus blue state gets worse. Developed world versus developing world, gaps actually grow. So we don't actually respond globally to a global crisis. We actually fall farther and farther apart. And that, that, of course, that danger playing out in response to other proximate crises is a real challenge. This is a it means that when the United States leaves Afghanistan, the Russians and the Chinese don't come in and take over the way some had warned would happen. Instead, nobody comes in. It's a vacuum. And there's more drugs that are exported and there's more migration. Um, and there's also more Islamic fundamentalism. And not only in distant Afghanistan that we don't care that much about, but how about in Haiti? Right. I mean, where it's right in our backyard. And I mean, you know, we we do make sure that when Haitians come to the U.S., we try to send them back. But otherwise, we're not doing a hell of a lot on the ground. And there's, there are a lot more places like that, Syria and Libya and Venezuela and Myanmar. And I mean, if the Americans aren't the global policemen and there's no appetite among the American policy community for us to do that, there's very little support in Congress. There's very little support among the population at large. Who else is going to do it? The answer is no one. Now, 
That doesn't mean that we can't respond to crises at all. One of the interest, if you want to take the more positive side of this, if you look at climate change, the Americans and the Chinese are the two largest emitters of carbon on the planet. China's number one. We're the number one historically. And uh, the Americans and the Chinese at the federal level are not in any way leading the charge in response to climate change. And yet, as a world, we are increasingly doing more and more and more. We're building momentum. And that's because we are finding ways outside of the U.S. government at the federal level and the Chinese government at the federal level to respond. And that, that I think, is a place where we can get increasingly hopeful. Including industry. Uh, yes. And banks, both. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And young people. You talked about American democracy and democracy generally. You know, I, I read what you write and you're very dark on it, especially for a guy who's pretty upbeat. You're, you're very dark on this. Talk to me about that. And, and, and I want to run a theory of my own by you. But first, just generally give me your, your overview about uh, the challenges to democracy and what the implications for the world are and democracies generally of what's going on in the U.S. Well, I mean, the good news is it's not happening in the G7 as a whole. So, I mean, you've just had elections in the last few months in Germany and Japan and Canada. They've been fine. We're about to have elections in France and South Korea. They'll be fine. We, it's only the United States that can't have national elections <laughs> that are free and fair and legitimate that the losers actually recognize as being legitimate. We, we appear to have passed the point of no return on that for the foreseeable future. And it was bad in 2016. It got dramatically worse in 2020. And it's likely to get dramatically worse in 2024. And yet it's not bad enough. And that's part of the problem. I mean, on January 6th, and this was one of the biggest shocks of my life. And I don't mean the events of January 6th in the Capitol, at least not during the day. I mean the events in the Capitol at night. For me, the shock, because I was not at all surprised at what happened in the Capitol during the day. In fact, we wrote about that expectation in our top risks piece a few days before. When, I mean, 46 asterisk and illegitimate Biden presidency was our number one risk. It wasn't COVID. But the fact that after they were all cleaned out and the Senate comes back in session and the House comes back in session and a majority of the Republicans in the House, a, a large majority, still vote that evening not to certify the election. That was the surprise. And I think the reason that that happened is because they all thought to themselves, well, yeah, that was kind of uncomfortable and unpleasant, but Trump's gone and, you know, we're going back to usual. And why would I take a vote that has the potential of risking my personal career mm -hmm. with these guys that are important um, when I mean, what's the point of it? And that creates a massive collective action problem. But the reality is that life is too comfortable institutions are too resilient and too stable. We're not on the verge of civil war. We're not on the verge of revolution. We're on the verge of a constitutional crisis. And that's not enough to actually build backbone among people to say, I'm willing to risk something because the country matters more than that. That's what depresses me. This is obviously related in part to, uh, to the growing populist movement here that Trump sort of led. And but certainly didn't invent. Did not at all. I mean, I remember the 2008 election and watching these Sarah Palin rallies. And I mean, you know, this this has been a long stay. He seized on something and he very, very skillfully manipulated and exploited it. But we also see these movements elsewhere in the world. What's at the root of it? 
Look, we today, it's very simple. We today in the United States are not only the most powerful country in the world, but we are also the most economically unequal by far of the G7 advanced industrial democracies. We're the most politically divided and dysfunctional. And we are the least vaccinated and we have by far the highest COVID death rate. I mean, these are basic metrics that show that our government is not doing enough for the average American. Look, I think that it is not coincidental that the most powerful individual men in the private sector on the planet are in the United States. Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, both deeply brilliant and entrepreneurial and also deeply flawed and non-civil-minded men. Um, but we as a government and as a country, we you know, sort of lionize these animal spirits so much so that we allow them to capture the regulatory process. And it in turn undermines the social fabric of our country to a far greater degree than any of the other G7. And I think that over the last 40 years, we have increasingly been reaping what we sow. What are the implications long-term for the U.S. of that? There are a couple ways of looking at it. In the medium term, let's say next five to 10 years, I think the implications are a constitutional crisis, more social instability, red states and blue states that are farther apart. I mean, if you end Roe versus Wade, yeah. it's not like this becomes the handmaid's tale. It just means that red states, you can't get abortions, blue states, you can. Right. And so, so, I mean, it's not, it's not a collapse, but would you, could you see secessionist movements? Could you see more civil disobedience that becomes significant? Yeah. Could you see more Portland, Oregon type behavior? Yeah. I think that stuff will happen. But I, I also think that over the next 15, 20 years, you know, demographics in the United States are going to make it literally too hard to be a minoritarian country. I mean, you know, and, and that will force either the Republicans to dramatically change tack in the way they are trying to attract votes as opposed to further disenfranchisement efforts. Or it means that you'll end up with a new party that will emerge in the center because it's too attractive. So I, I don't I'm not I'm not as worried given how much wealth and power exists in the U.S., but I'm more worried about what that level of incredible inequality is going to mean for the planet, because that's not just a U.S. issue. That's increasingly more a global issue. The last 50 years have been marked by the emergence of a global middle class. And yet almost every major trend in the world today is away from that. It's more decoupling. It's less um, uh, labor being driven by capital and instead labor being disenfranchised by capital and all of the new technological changes that allow that to persist. Yeah, I think technology is at the core of a lot of this. And I want to sound like a Luddite and it's not something, you know, there are tremendous advantages to these technological advances that uh, we've seen, but there are also, they're coming at such an exponential rate that we can't get our arms around the implications right. uh, of all of them. So here's my question. It strikes me that we have this mismatch that is terribly damaging, which is, you know, democracies generally and ours certainly are set up to move slowly when you're when you have divisions, when you're divided. Change is coming at us more rapidly than ever because technology churns at such an exponential rate. So you create this this dissonance between change that is unsettling people, that's creating anxiety, and certainly the whole social media world contributes to this but and you have government that's moving or at least seemingly moving slowly and is 
too lumbering to keep up with the changes. And it creates a tremendous dissatisfaction with government, uh, which is terribly difficult for a democracy. It is. And it is it does raise the question of whether a technologically empowered China suddenly has more advantages where 10, 20 years ago, you'd say, no, globalization and technology means more transparency. The communications revolution, orange revolutions, the Arab Spring, it's going to bring these countries down. But now it's all about surveillance and the collection of data. And is it more effective when you're the Chinese government? You say, I'm not going to let kids spend more than two hours a week on video games. They don't roll over. How many American parents would like to be able to say that, but you can't do it. Yes. Uh, and so you do wonder if the Chinese government will be more effective in instilling what they consider patriotic values um, into the population and disenfranchise the technology companies that are increasingly dangerous to China. I wonder, I mean, I think the big threat is not the US or China to each other. I think the big threat increasingly is technology companies to the sovereignty of governments, because in the digital space, we're not nonpolar, we're technopolar. Yes. And that's a very different geopolitical order to think about. I had a guy who uh, was a big uh, investor in Facebook come to my office when I was in the White House. And he said, you don't understand, pa Facebook isn't a com company. Facebook is a country in and of itself. We're going to have our own currency. You know, we're going to cross borders. You have to understand what Facebook is. And this was, you know, obviously years ago now. This is the Chinese argument, of course. And it's not just about how they can ha uh, uh, manage technology, but they make a kind of argument for autocracy, that democracies are too in uh, enfeebled by division now. They, they can't act in the way that is necessary to be competitive in the modern world and so on. I mean, that's the that's basically... That that basically the democratic uh, experiment is is uh, is spent. Yeah, they do argue that. Yeah, but, the, but but I would also say that China's domestic challenges are an order of magnitude greater over the next ten years than America's are. Yeah, talk about that. Well, I mean, first of all, uh, massive corporate indebtedness, huge real estate bubble that they can't deal with. They keep punting. Demographic challenges. They've moved from one to two to three child policy, but actually before. They uh, get to be the largest economy in the world. Their economy starts shrinking. I mean, their, their, their population starts shrinking. That's 2027. The zero COVID policy, which just is not going to work when it comes to Omicron. Um, and uh, yeah, this and, Olympics and, is kind of a public yeah. relations disaster for them. Absolutely. Uh, and so, I mean, and further, the fact that they they want to be dominant technologically, but they have tech companies, too, that are really powerful, but they're worried about them. So if you disenfranchise them, then you undermine the ability to compete effectively and dominate against the Americans. But if you keep them going, then they're undermining Chinese sovereignty. And how do you respond to that challenge? I mean, it's a, the Chinese have very, very significant challenges um, that are deep and structural. And it, it doesn't mean they're going to implode. It just means that their ability to keep growing at the level that they have sustainably is going to be beset with all sorts of structural problems. You know, the FBI director, Ray, made a speech yesterday and talked about the increasing threat of China and the focus of the FBI on it and uh, the number of uh, investigations they're opening at kind of a prodigious rate into Chinese incursions, particularly commercial incursions uh, on the U.S., um, you say you're not as concerned about the U.S.-China relationship, but it sounds, you know, right now, it doesn't feel very good. 
Well, it doesn't feel good because there's no trust, but there's massive interdependence. And the fact that there is so much of both of our economies that are requiring each other and to keep that business going, and we both know it, we're both fully aware. I, I think that our relationship is much more like one of two parents where the love is gone in the relationship, but we have kids in our house that we both love. And we want to make sure that we continue to take care of the kids. And, that, and that's a very psychologically difficult place to be, but you still do it. And that's kind of where the Americans and Chinese are. Ian Bremer, uh, I could talk to you forever. Your story is great and your insights are even greater. So it's uh, really wonderful to spend time with you. I look forward to talking again. That's really kind. I really enjoyed it, man. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, brought to you by the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN Audio. The executive producer of the show is Allison Siegel. The show is also produced by Miriam Finder Annenberg, Jeff Fox, and Hannah Grace McDonald. And special thanks to our partners at CNN, including Rafina Ahmad, Courtney Coop, Ashley Lusk, and Megan Marcus. For more programming from the IOP, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.